we're going to jump right back into Galatians. We're coming to the end of this book. And today, uh, our journey through this letter uh, takes a turn. Uh, and really, Paul now is going to practically move into what does it mean to live in gospel freedom? And how do we actually do it? He spent a huge portion of this letter defending his stance that the gospel is not the gospel plus the law, but the gospel is a declaration that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, that the law was a temporary, uh, a temporary uh, reality in God's redemptive story uh, that was meant to be put in place until the coming of Jesus. And now that Jesus has come, there is a new reality by which one can enter into obedience and relationship and covenantal partnership with God, and that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And remember, these false teachers have come in and they've said, yeah, faith in Jesus saves plus returning to Torah, Old Testament law. And Paul said, absolutely not. Why are we trying to resurrect something that has been fulfilled and put away? There is one word that fulfills the law now, and that is the word of love. But how is it that we enter into that love? And so what I want us to move into today is the challenge that we are confronted with around the reality of gospel freedom itself, the paradox of that freedom. And so if we could get the first slide up. What we're going to see in this intro, I just want to remind you that, the, that there is a freedom, but the freedom comes with a choice. It's the freedom to follow, Jesus in the power of the Spirit, or it's the freedom actually, that freedom actually creates the possibility of failure as well. Uh, and that's a really challenging thing for many of us. What does it mean to actually be transformed by the gospel? And, and I, I always like to remind all of you of, of that famous phrase from the British preacher Alan Redpath who once said that the vast majority of Christians live with this motto written over their, over their lives save soul wasted life. The possibility of giving our life to Jesus and experiencing regeneration but then actually missing the possibility of true gospel freedom uh, because they never figure out how to enter into that freedom in all of its fullness because it's not the freedom to do what we want, it is the freedom that empowers us to do what is right. Uh, so, when we look at this text, let's read these first few verses together. Look what he says. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Why would he say that if that wasn't actually a possibility? So the moment you are set free, that freedom creates responsibility. The moment you are free is actually the moment it becomes possible to blow it. That's a really hard thing for us to accept because isn't the gospel all about grace? Receiving God's finished work on our behalf, receiving, but it's not passive receptivity. It's not let go and let God, it's let go and then cling to, let go of the lie of who God never intended you to be and cling to Jesus with everything that is in you, empowered by his spirit, transformed by his life. He doesn't leave us passive participants, he leaves us, he leaves us with empowerment by the Spirit to get up 
and to begin to move. He always said, follow me. Belief in him led to following him. Pick up your cross and follow me, which means that there is no passive position for the Christian, that we are called to move into this Christian life. So he says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, here's the fulfillment of the law, that we're not called to, the, the Torah is not to be done by Christians. We are to recognize that it's been fulfilled and this is faith working through love. The law is removed. So the question now for us is what will bridle those impulses? If it's not law that keeps us in check, what will bridle those impulses? And Paul's answer to you and I and to the, to the Galatians is that yielding to the spirit in each new moment is now the divinely prescribed path toward righteousness. But here's the challenge that we are faced with, is that the church tends to pendulum swing between two extremes. On one side, it's all about grace. It's all about God's one-way love toward you. It's all about his finished work, and we just need to rest in that grace. And man, I am one who loves to preach the outrageousness of grace, that God cannot love you any more or any less today, regardless of what you do or what you've done, he is crazy about you. On your worst stinking day, he is crazy about you. This is why Martin Luther said to Melanchthon, sin boldly. All he's trying to tell him is this, is that no matter what you do, you cannot change the fact that the work has been finished by King Jesus. Past, present, and future sins have been forgiven. But what does that mean for us in the moment? What should that create for us? Does that mean that we should just continue to sin, to do what we want? And so the church can fall into this trapping where it becomes this sort of cheap grace. It's not cheap grace, it's free grace. And I think that it's important for us to understand is that grace, when it comes into our life, is meant to bring transformation. And if it leaves us as we were, what's the point? Because what do we want to be freed from? I mean, isn't the reality this, is that Jesus says, I have come to set the captives free, that we found ourselves bound in the, in the chains of, of the enslavement that comes through the flesh and the gratification. He says, do not gratify the flesh. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to gratify the flesh, which tells us that that's always a possibility that the more free we become, the more responsibility there is. And so, how do we deal with this? Well, first of all, I wanna just begin to remind you that Paul gives us here, once again, the paradoxical interpretation of freedom as slavery. It's impossible to live life uh, fully free in the sense of how our society preaches freedom, that you are the center of your own universe, you are the master of your own decisions, you are free and truly free. I mean, you, you can't really be an anarchist, okay? You can't actually define, you're not, even in a country that prides itself on, on civil liberty and freedom for all, we aren't free in the truest definition of that word. You're not free to do whatever you want. You break the law, you go to jail. And some of you break the law and don't go to jail, but you're still breaking the law, as I did when I drove my motorcycle here this morning way too fast because I was running late. Um, and I was afraid if I slowed down, it would die because it's not running well. But nonetheless, 
We utilize our freedom often to do things that we ought not to do, but the same goes for all principles of existence. We're not truly free. We're bound by all sorts of laws. And what gospel freedom is, is not the freedom to just do whatever we want. No, it's a freedom that comes through our covenant loyalty to King Jesus. It's a freedom that comes from our accepting him as Lord. But here's the thing. He is the only good master. Because the worst tyrant you will ever experience in your existence is yourself. We make horrible masters. And the freedom we need and the freedom that we desire is a freedom that only Jesus can give. And so, as Paul said, he says, listen, I am free from human measurements of value. If I was still seeking to please men, I wouldn't be pleasing God. And, and why is he able to say that? He says, because he has become a slave of Christ. He has become free from the tyranny of the flesh and the tyranny and the lies of a, of a, of a culture and a kingdom that has actually been conquered through the work of Jesus. He has been freed by it because he has given himself in total covenant loyalty to Jesus. He has cast himself in, in faith upon the full work of Jesus. And so, I love this. John Stott said that Christian freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. And, and that's an important thing, is that what motivates us to actually live differently is actually the acceptance that we have been forgiven, we are forgiven, and we shall be forgiven, and therefore it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, a change of direction about who's gonna be Lord. And we do a disservice to the church when we separate salvation from sanctification, that the goal of the gospel is the transformation of the life into the likeness of Jesus. And so, the two, the two pendulum swings I see in the churches on one side is this sort of libertine attitude, this sort of antinomian attitude. Listen, Jesus paid for it all and I'm gonna live how I want. And that's not the gospel. On the other side, I see the church moving back toward a sort of therapeutic moralism that's constantly telling people what to do rather than functioning from grace. And so it's all about earning God's favor, creating systems that make us feel better about our existence. Neither side is correct. We need to fully understand God's grace toward us, that God loves us. He is not angry at us. He hates sin because it robs him of what he loves, which is you. And when we fully understand his love and accept that love and allow ourselves to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that freedom then creates this responsibility of what D.L. Moody said, salvation is like a gold mine. We must learn to dig it out. That there is a participation piece that cannot be ignored. So let me ask you a question because what we're gonna spend some time on is some, some uncomfortable things today. Because Paul now moves from that gospel reality of you're standing in Jesus based upon his work, but now he's going to address the dangers of not holding fast to that gospel reality and what it's like when we allow the flesh to control our lives, especially in the context of the community. And, and he's gonna get into even a list of what the, flesh, what the works of the flesh are, and it's not comfortable, guys, but I think it has to be spoken for the scripture shall not come back void. I wanna give you a definition of flesh uh, as defined by David De Silva. He says, it is the sum total of impulses, urges, and desires that lead human beings away from virtue towards self-promotion and self-gratification at the expense of the interests and well-being of others. John Stott defines the flesh as 
what we were by natural birth. The spirit as what we become by the new birth and that these two, the flesh and the spirit, are in continual opposition to each other. So John Stott says, the flesh is what we were at birth and David De Silva defines what that is, which is the default setting to actually put self at the center of everything that we do and how it destroys relationship with God, relationship with others, and ultimately destroys our ability to even understand ourselves. And so the freedom that we have experienced as Christians is a fragile thing. And I need to state that again, because the moment you're set free, there is the possibility of blowing it. And if we don't understand that, we will live defeated lives, and that is not the witness that God wants for us. There is power available to us. It's not by keeping the law, it's by keeping in step with the Spirit. So let's get into what it means to walk by the Spirit versus gratifying the flesh. If we can move to the next passage here, we're gonna cover a lot of ground. So he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. I wanna state out of the gate that there is a civil war literally going on within each of us. John Stott said that, listen, there is such a thing as a moral conflict in all people. All people experience moral conflict. There's no doubt about it. But he argues that it is more fierce in Christians because we possess two natures, flesh and spirit, in irreconcilable antagonism. Now, I know that there are many within Christendom that have held to the idea that if we truly understand the gospel, that Paul in Romans 7 uh, is just using that as an analogy, but that wasn't actually his reality when he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. They're like, he doesn't really mean that. He has total victory in Jesus, total power and victory over sin. Uh, and, and, you know, he's using that as an analogy of what life is like when you don't understand the spirit. But that's not what Paul says. It's all in the present tense. And here's the problem that I have with that stance, that this idea that, that the flesh doesn't really have power in our lives once we become regenerated. That's a false, that's a false statement on multiple levels. First of all, he says, and he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. First of all, he acknowledges that the flesh is there and that if we don't walk in, the, he's insinuating that if you don't walk in the Spirit, you're immediately gratifying the desires of the flesh. And if it's not possible to gratify the desires of the flesh, then I ought not to be your pastor because I'm pretty sure that when my alarm went off today, I might have even cursed under my breath and been super upset that I had to get up angry at the world until I had my first cup of coffee. The flesh is amazing at its ability to resurrect itself. Uh, and, and here's the thing, I talked with a young man once who uh, was in ministry and he was extremely gifted and I remember him arguing with me on Romans 7, I was teaching on Romans 7, he's like, no, Paul's not talking in the present tense, that there is total power and victory over sin in the power of the Spirit. I'm like, I agree with that, but that doesn't mean that it'll be continual and we crucify the flesh. Crucifixion is not instantaneous death, it is a long drawn out death, which means that the real goal of the Christian life is to figure out how to keep the flesh on the cross and quit trying to take it off the cross. 
Jesus says, daily pick up your cross and follow hard after me. And I'm like, yes, there is victory when we live moment by moment in the power of the Spirit, but the reality is as long as there is a sinful nature at play, you will fail. And this is why we need community and life together to hold each other accountable, to pull each, up, each other up out of the mud when we fall. And he was like, no, no, that's not possible. It's fascinating that this man who was brilliant seemed to have, and I believe, a genuine love for Jesus, had memorized literally most of the New Testament, and then turns around and has an affair and blows up his marriage and his ministry. I'm telling you right now that the moment you think that the flesh has no power in your life, you are living on dangerous ground because that's ignorant and it's foolish. The question is, is what are we chasing after? And what Paul wants us to understand is that freedom is fragile. That the freedom that we receive from as we mature in faith, we become more and more free. But the more free we are, the more responsible we are for that freedom. Just like parenting, I give my kids more and more freedom as they get older. I expand the parameters, but as the parameters are expanded, there is greater possibility of failure. They can't grow in maturity if those parameters aren't expanded. And so here we see this reality played out where he says, listen, don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Let me just ask a question right out of the gate. Is Paul saying that desire and urges are bad? No, he's not. Desires are God-given. Urges are God-given. The issue is not the desires. The issue is that in our sinful impulses, when we put ourselves at the center of the universe, is that we tend to act upon those desires and urges without self-control, trying to satisfy them in ways that actually enslave us. We're basically taking the good things of God and utilizing them in, in ways that we ought not to at times when we ought not to. All things, I am free, Paul says, to do all things, but I will be enslaved by none of them. It's, the prop, it's, it's, it's allowing the Holy Spirit to place our affections in their proper places. Now, here's the thing. He says, walk by the Spirit. And I wanna just note this. What is one of the, the great issues that we find in our culture, the speed at which we're living, is that we are often chasing after fulfillment of our fantasy self that we will never become. And it's exhausting. But to walk by the Spirit, I don't know about you, but I, I'm, I'm a horrible, just some of you like to run, and that's not natural. Um, but, I, and I know there's some of you that just did the 50K run, and you're like, I find it so refreshing and relieving, and the, the runner's high. I don't actually, I think that's all lie and fabrication of your own creation. I run on the treadmill one mile, and I'm like a, I'm like a rhinoceros that might break the treadmill. It's like, it's noisy, everything about it's just, Un, unappealing, uh, but walking, I, I read this book um, on the philosophy of walking, because I don't like to walk, I prefer to read, and uh, <laughs> my wife likes to walk. She, she actually understands the philosophy of walking. I read a book on it, I told her I don't need to, that I fully understand the, the principle. Um, but walking is one of the things that if you look at history of great thinkers and philosophers, a lot of them use walking as a place to truly come to clarity on their thoughts. And Darcy's like that. She goes on these five mile walks almost every day as like this very therapeutic because walking is motion without strife. We can walk a lot farther than we can run. 
and, and, and motion without strife, and it also allows us the ability to take in our surroundings. But when life is a chase, this exhausting chase, we miss so much, and we're exhausted, and we don't have the energy. And I like how Paul uses the illustration of a walk, a walk with the Spirit, following after. It's movement, but it's movement without strife. Uh, and, and that's such a beautiful analogy. But here we need to understand that if we are led by the Spirit, we are no longer under law. And here Paul connects, once again, the gratifying of the flesh with law. Whether you're living as a libertine or the legalist, the moment you're not walking by the Spirit, you're missing the point. It's one of the things he's trying to help us understand. So now he's gonna go on to actually help us understand the reality of this civil war, and this is where we're gonna spend some, some significant time. And I'm sorry we have a lot of ground to cover. I thought I could do this message faster than I was able to in the last service, but in Galatians chapter five, verses 19 through 23, we now begin to see at play the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit. And I wanna spend some time um, on the works of the flesh because I think that it has become taboo within the church to talk about the challenges and the lies by which our culture continually feeds us uh, and tells us that these things are okay. And I just want you to know that it is impossible to live in the society in which we live, in the city in which we live, and not be influenced by the continual voices that are speaking into our lives that affect our understanding of scripture, that affects our understanding of God and continues to keep us enslaved. And I wanna say out of the gate, my goal is not to create guilt and shame, that's not the gospel, that the Holy Spirit comes to convict and comfort, not guilt and shame that Jesus actually frees us from guilt and shame. The enemy wants you to feel ashamed. And if you find yourself, as I begin to address the works of the flesh, and you find yourself entrapped in these things, I want you to know that Jesus loves you. And he is after your joy. And the reason that he tells us not to do certain things is not because he's a cosmic killjoy trying to rob us of our natural appetites. He's trying to show us that he has our best in mind and whatever he says not to do, it is because he knows that it hurts us. And so, as we move into this list, look, look at this. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. I put in parentheses on the screen behind uh, other translations to kind of fill out the words a little bit for us, some of us, uh, which can be translated debauchery idolatry, this one's interesting, sorcery. I know immediately when you hear that, you think Harry Potter, and as much as I'd love to talk to you about Harry Potter, that's not what Paul is addressing here. Uh, in fact, the word sorcery in the Greek is where we get the word pharmacy. It's the word pharmakeia, uh, and, and it really is speaking specifically to drug-induced spells or drug-induced worship. Um, and I think that, that that's Interesting, we'll address that in a minute. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries or self-promoting acts, weird uh, in the age of Instagram. Uh, dissensions, divisions, uh, which is factions. Envy, drunkenness, and my favorite, orgies. Uh, which, <laughs> I, I like it. he says, orgies and things like these, which was gonna be the title of my sermon, uh, orgies and things like these. Um, <laughs> he's not talking about a group of people in a room 
sleeping together at once. What he's talking about is gluttonous excess, and that's far more convicting and far more realistic, uh, even in our experience in this city. Uh, And then he goes on to say, he goes, and things like these, which means that this is not an exhaustive list. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do, that is keep on practicing, such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the question is like, does that mean if I, if I find myself entrenched in this sin that I'm, that I'm not saved? And, and I think that Paul would say, this is the evidence of one who's not walking in the spirit, which may mean that you don't know Jesus at all, but it also may mean that you're living in, in, in total defeat when there's absolute power um, and victory available to you. And so I like to say that it, it, it can mean the final reality that, that, that you're outside of that eternal destiny of existence with Jesus forever, but it also can mean as a Christian that you are not experiencing the power and the presence of his kingdom in your life right now. And so let's consider these works of the flesh because we have to address these things. We cannot be afraid to address these things. And let's begin with the first three words, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality, or debauchery. And this is what I would refer to as unsanctified sexual indulgence. It is the objectification of the other. And in a society in which we live, which is so hypersexualized that basically defines enjoyment in human existence is defined by our ability to express ourselves sexually. We need to know that that is one of the greatest lies that our, that our current culture has ever propagated because Jesus Christ himself was a celibate man and nobody was more fulfilled nor satisfied with existence. No one lived more fully as a human than Jesus. And so one of the great lies is that it is not possible to be fulfilled unless I can be a sexual creature. We are sexual beings, but that doesn't mean that we need to be engaging in every sexual impulse. And the reality is, is that Paul himself said, I wish all of you, I think we do an incredible disservice to those who are single. It puts a tremendous amount of pressure that I can't be a complete person unless I am able to have sexual intimacy with another. And that lie has created also the hypersexualization or the objectification of the other in a way that actually goes against God's good intention of sex. Is sex a beautiful gift from God? Yes, it is. But it is a sacred gift that is meant, if we're to declare what Scripture says, to be exercised between one man, one woman in marital covenant. But here we have sexual dysfunction being played out in every arena. Let me just share with you an article that just came out this month in The Guardian. It says this, it says, it was an article on sexual dysfunction among young adults. It says, what we're finding is a generation of men who find it much easier to have a sexual relationship with their device than a person. Like other therapists I spoke to, she says the prevalence of pornography is at least partly to blame. Come on, are you kidding me? Uh, it's, I, I can't, even this article is so frustrating, it's like they know what the problem is, but they're actually unwilling to fully say it, because we don't want to, you know, we don't want to be too judgy on any particular industry not recognizing the damage that pornography has done to an entire generation that's had exposure to it since they're 11 years old. The Guardian last month said, for young women, Lovett sees the impact of 
pornography in body image insecurity and even dysmorphia. What used to be primarily a male issue has become both a male and female issue. And even if women aren't looking at pornography, young men looking at pornography impacts their relationships with young women. There's no getting around it. We talk about the issues of sex trafficking. Let me just tell you, if pornography came to an end, it would end sex trafficking. It's a massive issue. There are many of you that were looking at it last night before you came to church today. And it has ensnared the hearts and the souls of many. In the, in the same in the same publication, The Guardian, last month, at the beginning of the month, they put out an article that said, porn is making young men impotent. It says up to a third of young men now experience impotence, sexual dysfunction in their youth because they have been driven by this false idea, this objectification of the other. And if you watch, one of the best TED Talks I've ever seen was one called The Demise of Guys, in which this this non-Christian, secular psychologist got up and said, listen, men are failing in every arena of life. And the reason that they're failing in every arena of life is because, and he goes, we can only come to two conclusions, excessive gaming and excessive pornography addiction. And he says, what it does, he goes, it's a different kind of issue and problem, and it's affected their ability to interact and connect with people because it creates what he refers to as arousal addiction. And arousal addiction is not like normal addiction. Normal addiction is I want more of the same. Arousal addiction is I am not satisfied with anything but more of different. And this is why often those who get entrenched in pornography, it leads to deeper and darker places. And I don't need to get into the gritty details of that, but if you were to actually look at the statistics of the kind of porn sites that are searched for in search engines, you would be disturbed. Some of you know it because some of you are ensnared in it. And I think it goes deeper than that. It's relationships. I mean, the amount of young couples that I've done premarital counseling with that are so entrenched in the culture that they aren't able to maintain uh, sexual purity before their marriage. I mean, it's just common. And the ways that we justify this behavior is because we've lost sight of the fact that Jesus, is sex fun? Sure. Why do people look at porn? Because it feels good in the moment, but does it ever feel good on the backside? The regrets that I have from my youth of living a promiscuous lifestyle is extreme. The fact that I got two girls pregnant that both got abortions at 18 will haunt me for the rest of my life and I will give an account to Jesus someday for that. Am I forgiven? I am. But does it change the fact that it meant the end of two lives? It does not. We can't change the past. We can find forgiveness and freedom though, right now in the present. That's important for us to understand. I don't share that with you to shock you. I share that with you to remind you that it's a reality and it's a real problem and it's not being addressed enough in the church today. The, the second thing is idolatry. If you're still reeling from that, let's just keep on going. <laughs> We're not even into the list yet. Uh, idolatry, let me just simply state it. Idolatry is the natural religious impulse of the human heart that has turned itself instead of instead of horizontal is now vertical, or excuse me, instead of vertical is now horizontal. Uh, as David Zoll beautifully explains in his book, Seculosity, the religious impulse is alive and well, and our absolute obsession, our religious, our religious impulse is being placed upon technology, parenting, romance, uh, busyness, work, and the like. The list goes on and on. And all Luther would say about idolatry is this, is that your God, 
is whatever it is that you hang your heart on. In other words, whatever it is that you love, that is what you, whatever you love the most, that is what you worship. You are what you love. You are what you give your life to. And the question is, is all you have to ask, and when you, when you start to look at this list, you realize that, man, I can't escape that I'm in this list, that I find myself in this list. Because the idolatry of the human heart, as Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. You get rid of one and it just reveals another. But then he goes on to say something really fascinating, drug-induced spells. And let me just hit another hot topic, just because I'm on hot topics today. Uh, you know, one of the questions that I've consistently re uh, received emails about um, over the last, last couple years since the legalization of marijuana is, is marijuana bad now that it's legal? Now that it's legal. Well, listen, pornography is legal too. I just got done telling you that's bad. The question around marijuana, first of all, I think that often it's not asked by anyone who came out of any sort of like past serious drug problems. It seems to be asked by those that have maybe grown up in the church that are like ready to experience a little more freedom than the legalism they grew up with as kids. And so I get it. Like you're, you're curious. Okay, great. I've, I get it. We found a joint in our offering box on an Easter one year. I mean, door of hope in all of its blessed maturity. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, so here's, the, here's the question. Paul uses this word sorcery, and, and Cameron and I did a whole message on a podcast actually on marijuana. And there are two things. One thing that scripture is utterly clear. What we're talking about is the works of the flesh which are self-focused, selfish in their orientation. They're all about self-gratification versus the fruit of the spirit which is all about other orientation. Marijuana is very self-focused. I know, I used to be a stoner. It's, it's a very self-focused reality. And here's the thing is that if you look at the history uh, of, of the use of marijuana, its background, its history is actually driven by pagan worship. It's a way of opening up the mind and the consciousness to divine realities. And if we believe as Christians that we aren't just dealing with flesh and blood, but that there is a spiritual reality behind what is seen, we need to understand that when you alter the mind through drugs, you are opening yourself up to things that you aren't not to open yourself up to. I do believe there is a spiritual reality that directly connects to what Paul is addressing here. And by the way, Paul is addressing a region that was notorious for pagan worship that included drugs as a means of getting in touch with enlightenment. And is that normative now? Because it's not stopping at marijuana, guys. It's not stopping there. We're right in the process of putting forth legislation that's gonna legalize mushrooms next. And who knows where it goes from there, but do you feel okay to do heroin if it was legal? And the question is, is what does scripture declare? It says, be sober-minded. He says, be sober-minded. That why are you doing it? If you're, if you're here today and you're smoking weed all the time, the question is, is why are you doing it? What is it that you're trying to escape from? What is it that you're trying to find fulfilling? Is it just for fun? Are you escaping or are you trying to open yourself up? What is the reason? And is it leading you into a more self-giving lifestyle? I can't define for you every parameter of your life. I'm not a very prescriptive preacher. I think the primary responsibility of the preacher is to continually point people to Jesus and the cross. 
But sometimes the scripture just hits things on the nail and I do believe it's something that needs to be addressed. Also, we need to understand that there's new studies coming out and I found this personally. If you have any inclination, any leaning whatsoever toward any kind of mental illness, I mean, it's pretty much across the board they're discovering that there are more and more people having nervous breakdowns, like it's triggering bipolar types of behavior that, that marijuana is not your friend. For me, it led me to hyper anxiety. It didn't make me all chill. Like you get it, it's not, and, and even, the, even the cultural presentation of it, look at how our culture presents. How is the stoner presented in culture? It's like Cheech and Chong. Do you remember Cheech and Chong? I used to watch Cheech and Chong when I was a little kid. Uh, don't watch it because it's so dumb. Um, but uh, <laughs> but I, I think that that's the thing. Even our culture, that there's truth in our stereotypes. And the stereotype is there for a reason. It's not, it's not enhancing existence. It's escaping existence. And that's not what it means to be spirit-filled. Notice, okay, okay if you're fine, fine I'm, not, I'm not struggling with sexual immorality. Uh, I'm not struggling with idolatry, which is not true, you are. Uh, and I, and I'm, not, I'm not engaged, I'm, I'm not Harry Potter and I'm not doing drugs. Okay, great. But get ready, because you're doing this. Uh, uh, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, self-promoting acts, dissensions, divisions, which is factions and envy. I can wrap that up in two words, social media. <laughs> David Zoll said, people are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. And many of us, we need to understand, I present my best self. I, I don't really, I have an Instagram account that I, just so you guys know, for those of you who follow mine, I actually have a manager for my music who actually does most of the posting on the Instagram account. And my daughter, Instagram, she sent me a direct message. She said, Dad, stop posting. It's embarrassing. And I'm like, and I go, I'm like, I, I didn't even know there was a post. I don't know how to post. She's like, quit adding to your story. I'm like, I don't even know what a story is. And then I found out there was like all this stuff being posted around the a record that was released recently. And it was, it was, it was my friend Tommy. Uh, so, you can say, thank you, Tommy, for keeping us up to date on what's happening. I don't understand it. Uh, but I do, when I do post on it, it's like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not posting pictures of us just getting up in the morning looking all scruff. We're gonna go for the best angle, the best chin angle, the best, the cleanest image of our house. I'm not taking pictures of the dirty dishes in the sink. We're presenting our fantasy self. And what's fascinating is the fantasy self then creates envy in others and jealousy. I, I, I was looking actually, there's a fascinating Instagram account right now that is so, it's blowing up and causing all kinds of controversy in the church. It's called Sneakers and Preachers. Have you heard it? It's, it's amazing. It's like pop culture celebrity pastors who are wearing you know, $10,000 outfits on stage and the guy that's posting pictures from their own Instagram accounts because they constantly post pictures of themselves preaching in really expensive outfits, and he breaks down the cost of every item of their clothes. Uh, and then it's, it's crazy, all these controversy, like people defending them, people saying this is wrong, this thing is presenting a gospel that says that if you love Jesus, he'll bless you like this. There's all kinds of questions around it, but here was the fascinating thing it did to me. I was like, I got nice shoes, what if I end up on there? And then Henry goes, Dad, no one cares about you. He's like, <laughs> He goes, you only have 1,800 followers. Like, look at the people that are going after you. Like, all those guys have 200,000 followers or more. And I'm like, 
why don't I have that many followers? And immediately, I like hit the list on like five different levels. I'm like envy, jealousy, guilt. I'm like all of it. I'm like those guys are. And then I'm critical. I'm like I'm like this is the worst thing ever. And then and and I didn't. And I told Henry he could have my shoes. And then he said. And then I and then I retracted that because I was still kind of hoping that maybe I'd find myself on it someday because I'm important <laughs> enough. Social media. It feeds our fantasy self, and it actually destroys community. And it's not just social media, but it's the ways that we interact. How much, how often the church focuses on sexual immorality or drug use or the very obvious things, but it ignores the fact that within the church, sitting on the pews is the critical spirit, is the backbiting, is the dishonesty. And sit, sitting on the pews is the, is the jealousy over what someone else has that you don't have. I mean, just the list goes on and on, and that's not how a community that's filled with the Spirit should act. And this is why he goes on to end with these two fascinating ones, drunkenness and orgies, gluttonous excess. Now, I want to just say, I mean, we need to understand that drink, drinking is a fascinating one because it used to be totally taboo in the church to drink at all. And as it's become more normative, especially over the last 15 years, where even clergy is allowed to drink wine without being considered uh, a blatant sinner, I do think it, it, it's, it's not come without its consequences. I, I think on one side, the danger of being legalistic, saying don't do this when scripture never says anything about that, uh, is a dangerous thing. I think that in everything where we have freedom, it's, it's spirit-led wisdom where we have to define what is right and what is wrong. And we can't ignore the fact that yes, we do have the first miracle that Jesus did was he made wine. That's true. But we also need to understand that scripture says a lot of really big warnings against drinking too much. In fact, Paul says, do not be drunk, which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. And the whole thing that we're talking about here is are we gratifying the flesh or are we being spirit-filled and spirit-led? And the thing is, is what are you escaping into? And I just wanna share with you just transparently, and this is, once again, this is not to make any judgment on anything nor to call you toward any path. I don't want you to necessarily do what I'm doing. I will say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That is, push hard into him, repent quickly, follow hard after, spend time with him, spend time in prayer, yield yourself to the Holy Spirit. But for me, as Darcy and I have been yielding to the Spirit, we just have entered a journey where we just feel like God said, I'm doing something, I need all of you. You're relying on alcohol to relax, to escape, put it away for a while. I'm not saying that we're never gonna drink again. I'm just saying, so if you see me with a glass of wine in a restaurant, please don't point at me and call me a hypocrite. Uh, but I've stopped drinking. And, and honestly, it's been life-giving. And it's been hard. It's not been easy because I really love a good glass of wine. And I never talk about alcohol from the pulpit because I never want to promote it as some normative thing, knowing that many of you maybe have come out of drinking problems. But I wanna say that I do see alcohol as an increasing problem within the church, especially in a city like Portland, where it just is too easy for it to become our friend and then our partner. And I think that this is a reality. These, this list is not meant to beat us up. It's meant to open our eyes to the fact that Jesus has come to set us free and we keep returning to the slavery. And it's because the slavery feels good for a moment and then we're trapped. And that's not how Jesus wants us to live. I think this is important as we look at the, at the gluttony of our city 
the natural ways that we continue to feed the desires, these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The transformed life, you guys, is not optional. It's essential. When we receive the gospel, what we need to understand is as the love of God compels us to live differently. When I know that Jesus loves me even when I blow it, It's that that makes me want to live differently. And that's why I said I don't want to create guilt and shame. I want you to know that if you've been blowing it every day, every moment, you blew it before you came here today, you've got problems in areas of sin that still just you're trapped in. I want you to know that Jesus loves you. And if you don't believe that, you'll never be free. You've got to be willing to receive his love. And you can't earn it. You've got to receive it. But it's not passive. It's grabbing a hold of that which is offered to you freely. He goes on to say the fruit of the Spirit is this. And I don't need to explain the fruit of the Spirit. Notice the difference. All of the works of the flesh are very self-oriented, self-focused. And isn't that interesting that often there are movements right now in the church that's all about self-discovery. I get very leery of that. It's kind of therapeutic moralism that I think is becoming more and more prevalent. If, if, if it's self, overly self-referential, we're missing the point of what Paul's even writing because he's talking about the transformation of the life by the Holy Spirit that pushes us into the world and into community in a meaningful way where we're not taking advantage of the other, but we're actually serving the other and it is in that that we find the freedom. And here he says this, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith gentleness, self-control, and he says, against such there is no law. And notice, it's not the fruit of Josh, nor you. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit produces that fruit as we yield to the Spirit's leading. That the Spirit provides what is necessary to live victoriously. This is the means toward righteousness. Not keeping the law in our own effort. Not creating some sort of list of selective sanctification. Jesus doesn't love me and Darcy more because we decided to stop drinking. The blessing in that moment of obedience is that in this moment, we're just saying yes to where the Spirit is leading us directly. We're just trying to be sensitive to what is right for us in this moment so that we can be the most useful possible for God's kingdom, that we might be servants of his love, of his joy, of his peace for his people. And when we give ourselves like that, that's where the real joy comes. And this is the reality. The highest goal of existence in Christ is not self-knowledge or self-mastery for the sake of individual perfection, but a pattern of behavior issuing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control for the good of the other. And this is why Paul writes to Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of what? Self-control. The fruit that springs from the Spirit's life is here identified as that which serves the community. Which brings me to the last slide in closing. So how do we do it? And Paul gives us two ways that we actually walk in the power of the Spirit where we can actually see the fruit of the Spirit manifested. People ask like, how do I know I'm growing in Christ? What's the evidence? Is there actually tangible evidence? What's the litmus test? And the litmus test is, do you love more this week? Have more joy this week? More peace, more patience, more gentleness? Or are you exhausted by your own self-effort at justifying your existence? Or you've received God's love and allowed the Holy Spirit to transform you from the inside out. You don't work toward victory, you work from it. 
And he says this, this is the key. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Keep in mind, that's not a past event that happens once and for all, but it's a continual event daily. Therefore, I beseech you, brothers and sisters, that you present God, present to yourselves, uh, present to God yourselves as living sacrifices. The crucified life is a life that is kept, that old life, the old nature is kept on the cross. Just as Jesus said in Luke chapter nine, verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after him, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily are we to take up our cross, which means that we die to the lie of who God never intended us to be, to come alive by the Spirit into the person, the man, the woman, the boy, the girl that he wants us to be, knows we can be, already sees us as in himself. And notice what he goes on to say. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So he ends once again with the warning that it's possible to utilize our freedom inappropriately. The freedom to do what we want actually leads once again to the destruction of the community. But when we understand that we are to crucify the flesh, notice what Paul says in Romans 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of the sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died... He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And then he says the same thing of us. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Reject the flesh. Be decisive about it. And understand this, that the flesh dies painfully. You know, it's funny. Darcy and I just being these two people that enjoy a glass of wine at night, even giving that up, it's been hard because we create patterns in our lives that's like, it's like, it's so normative for us to do these different things that become ways in which we lose sight of the Holy Spirit, lose sight of Christ's work. We give our, it's so much easier to give up and put our focus on the world. And it's, it's weird, it's like the greatest pleasures in life are the most difficult pleasures. And, the, and the, the most challenging aspect of the Christian life is to truly surrender. Because some of you are sitting here and there just are areas in your life that just simply are not surrendered. You've accepted the lordship of Jesus over many arenas in your life, but there are certain things that you just have not been willing to let go of. And I still find those things in my life, things that I wasn't aware of that God begins to reveal. And what's fascinating is the moment I began to be obedient in one area, the Lord began to show me other areas where he's like, okay, now let's begin to really show you what's going on. And I'm like, whoa, no, it's too much. It's too painful. I don't want to lay that down. I don't want to give that up. What I, uh, that's not true of me. And the Lord's like, come into the light. And as I experience his love and experience his grace, the light that reveals 
is also the light that conceals. His love becomes reflective off me as it also reveals to me areas of brokenness that need to continually come under his control. And that's what I want for all of us, is for us to work together as a community to come into the light, to put away the lies, and to recognize that the gospel's goal is the transformation of the life into the likeness of Jesus, that we would truly be spirit-filled, that we not mess around on the perimeters of slavery when we can experience real freedom. And I want freedom for every one of you. I want it for myself. I want it for our church because I believe it is a church that is truly set free by the Spirit that can be a real conduit of revival in this city. The preaching of holiness has become very neglected in the church today. And I think it's because we're afraid of becoming legalistic. And and listen, there's no legalism here. This is about the gospel and God's love his kindness leading us to repentance. It's repentance that's needed in the church, and repentance is not a dirty word, it's a beautiful word. It's just simply a change of direction. Saying I was going this way and now I'm going this way. I was following after this, controlling this, now Jesus is in control. Isn't the three words that bring salvation into our life, not just at the moment of salvation, but continually bring salvation into our life until we're face to face with our King, Jesus is Lord? If Jesus is Lord, what does that mean? It means that you're not. If Jesus is Lord, it means that he's the one that's in control. If Jesus is Lord, it means it's time for you to actually let him be Lord because he already is your Lord. So quit fighting it. It makes us miserable. And so I come to you today to encourage you that crucify the flesh, leave it on the cross, Give it to Jesus. The cross, uh, Stanley, Stanley um, what is his name? Stanley Voke, he wrote a book called Door of Hope, which is where I got the name for the church. It's a passage from Isaiah. But he uses the cross. He was a great South African evangelist and, and revivalist. And he, in that book, he refers to the cross as essentially a garbage dump. And in South Africa and England, they refer to a garbage dump as the tip. Um, and he says, a dump is a weird place to go to because you'll go there and you'll see people that are sentimental about things that they're leaving at the dump. They have to clean out their house and they don't really want it. But the dump is not somewhere where you go to get things. It's a place where you go and leave things. And Jesus calls us, he's like, there's things that just need to be left at the foot of the cross. And we keep going back to it and nursing it and grabbing it and trying to bring it back home. And I just encourage you, by the power of the Spirit, let it go and find real life. Whatever's fun in the moment, if it's gratifying the flesh, it will bring destruction and slavery in the end. But Jesus has come to set us free, and he says, whoever the Son of Man sets free shall be free indeed. And therefore, let us keep in step with the Spirit, which means if you have the life of the Spirit, we've got to keep following after him. He can't stand still. He's going somewhere. Are you going with him? And if we're to keep in step with the Spirit, we need to understand as a community that every one of us are gonna get out of step sometimes. And that's why we need one another. You cannot live the Christian life alone. So as a community, I call us together to push into the Spirit-filled life because this is our freedom. We have been set free, but let us not use that freedom to gratify the flesh, but let us live by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, keeping in step in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, for the Spirit wants to, through us, make Jesus known to the world. Amen? Let's pray.